In January 1972, two men were hunting on the South Sea Island of Guam when they made a startling discovery. The men found an active Japanese soldier. His name was Soichi Yokoi. For 28 years, Soichi had lived on the island in a jungle cave, still fighting World War II. He didn't know that the war was over. At one point, Yokoi had found a pamphlet that had been dropped from United States airplanes calling for his surrender, but Yokoi refused to believe the enemy's offer of amnesty. For over a quarter of a century, Yokoi lived in fear of capture. He spent his days in a cave and only came out at night. Soichi lived off frogs and rats and snails and river eels and nuts and papayas and mangoes and so forth. The war had ended. Victory had been decided. The world had changed. News of surrender had been received but not believed. And as a result, Soichi Yokoi lived in a self-imposed bondage. And sadly, this is the plight of many Christians. The war in us is over. Victory was decided on the cross. The sacrifice of Jesus sets off an explosion of grace that transforms everyone who believes. The cross of Jesus generates a miracle in the deepest part of the person who embraces Him. At our core, we become a new creation in Christ. Yet like Yokoi, if we don't know and believe the news, its impact will be minimal. If you live in a cave of doubt, you need to trust Jesus. It's faith that ends the fight. Well, Romans chapter 6 begins. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Now remember, in chapter 5, verse 20, Paul had stated, Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. But such a comment can be misinterpreted. Since the more we sin, the more grace God supplies, you can assume it's our duty to sin, some people might say. Let's really whip up some sin so that God can show off how generous he is by forgiving us with his grace. There was once a Russian monk. His name was Gregory Rasputin. He lived in the early 20th century, and he actually taught this heretical idea. He was called the mad monk. He said, if you are simply an ordinary sinner, you are not giving God an opportunity to show his glory. So you need to be an extraordinary sinner. And Rasputin succeeded. He was a womanizer. He was a drunkard. He was a disgrace to God's grace. His flawed logic is like the teenager who says that you got to keep a messy room so all your friends will see how great a housekeeper your mom happens to be. Ask my kids if they were willing to try that on their mom. And they would sound like Paul, certainly not. Are you out of your mind? She would have killed me. God's grace should never be used as an excuse for our sin. Paul continues, How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Grace doesn't perpetuate sin. It produces freedom from sin. And it does so in an interesting way. Here's a radical thought. In Christ, we died to sin. When you're dead, you're no longer aware or pulled by outside forces. Sin loses its stranglehold on a dead man. A corpse is no longer influenced or drawn by sin. To die to sin means that sin stops calling the shots. Now remember back in chapters 4 and 5, Paul has been discussing how the cross of Jesus provides us God's blessing and demonstrates to us God's love. It works for us, and it works in us. It cleanses our record, but it also changes our nature. Grace affects us not just judicially by cleansing our sin, but also effectually by transforming our hearts. The writer of the classic hymn, Rock of Ages, had this in mind when he penned the line, Be of sin the double cure, save from wrath, and make me pure. See, Jesus delivers us not only from the penalty of sin, but also 
from the power of sin. In essence, the cross did more than just give us a good paint job. It installs in us a new engine. And in Romans 6, Paul is going to pop the hood on our salvation to reveal the work that God has done inside those who embrace the cross and believe in Jesus. He says in verse 3, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now Paul uses two terms here to describe what happens when we come to Jesus. First, a theological term, baptism. Also though, a biological term, united together or grafted. First, this word baptized, it has multiple meanings. In, when, we think of, when we think of baptism, we often think of water baptism. But here it speaks of a spiritual experience. It means to induct or to install, to make part of. When a rookie quarterback goes into the first NFL game and he gets sandwiched between a few 300-pound behemoths, we say, he got his baptism. He got inducted. He got installed into the game. And this is what happened when you put your faith into Jesus. You were baptized into Christ. You were installed. You were inducted into a relationship with Christ. You became part of all that Jesus has acquired and Jesus has accomplished. Now, the biological term Paul uses in verse 5 is united together. It means to grow together or to be grafted. Ever see two trees grow together? They touch at a certain point, and at that point, they begin to grow as one. Well, we're now connected to Christ, and we are growing in Him. And this is where the plot thickens. For in Christ, we share all that He has acquired and all that He has accomplished. That means that when Christ died, in a spiritual sense, you died with Him. When He was buried, you joined Him. When he rose, you rose with new life. This is what we illustrate with water baptism. You're in the pool. You're standing there. You're a sinner. You're buried under the waters of death. But then you rise again alive in Christ. And I'm pretty good about bringing folks back up after I baptize them. I've never lost anybody in the current. And I'm careful not just to prevent a drowning But I'm just as concerned about depicting the proper spiritual reality. For you are not just part of Jesus' death and burial. You also share in his life. You're risen with him. In the early 90s, the U.S. invaded Iraq. It was called Operation Desert Storm. Military chaplains reported a spiritual awakening among many of our troops. Dozens of soldiers embraced Jesus and asked to be baptized. But there's not a lot of water in that part of the world. So one clever captain came up with a novel idea. He dug a shallow grave, covered it up with plastic, and then filled it with water, which fits the symbolism perfectly. For spiritually, when you connect to Christ, He comes to dwell in you, and you begin to dwell in Him. You share in all that He's accomplished, so that when He died, a part of you died with Him. And when he rose, a part of you rose with him. This is what Paul is teaching us. Blaise Pascal once wrote, One of the greatest principles of Christianity is that what happened in Jesus happens in the soul of the Christian. It's strange to think about it, but we share in an event that occurred 2,000 years before us and where we've never been. And yet it's true. As surely as those nails were driven into the hands of Jesus, you died with him. And as surely as he walked out of that tomb resurrected, you share in his life. Bible commentator Frank Gablian expresses it so well. He writes, our spiritual history began at the cross. 
Remember when Elisha raised the woman's son from the dead? 2 Kings chapter 4 describes the miracle. And he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands and he stretched himself out on the child. How creepy is that? Elisha interfaces with the child and the virtue residing in Elisha transferred spiritually to the corpse. Life flowed through the contact, through the connection. But likewise, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, in a mystical, in a spiritual way, your old sin nature was nailed there with Him. In your heart of hearts, you died to sin. What Jesus did for all mankind, He did for you in a very real and specific sense. I know it sounds weird, but but here's a way to stretch your thinking. In the making of a movie, scenes are shot first with the actors. There are no special effects, there's no music, not at first, just the actors. There are no special effects until later. For later in the process, the extras get dubbed on top of the original actors-only clip. You know what I'm talking about. Well, in God's mind and in His heart, when you came to Jesus, your spirit, the deepest part of who you are, got transposed on top of the crucified Christ. You died with Christ. God dubs in your old man over His only son. At that moment, the life you lived at odds with God died with Jesus. And now when the footage rolls in God's mind, in the halls of heaven, you're there. You're in Christ. You are crucified with Him, a new person indeed. This is what Paul says in verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him. Once a little boy came home from Sunday school. He said that he had learned that morning that Paul's father was one of the thieves on the cross. His mother scratched her head. She wondered, where in the world did he get such a wild notion? Well, the kid quoted Romans chapter 6, verse 6. My old man was crucified with Christ. That's not what Paul meant. But it's actually close. For Paul's father had a father who had a father who had a father who had a father who had a father all the way back to Adam. You remember what we talked about last week, Adam's sin. Adam bombed. The original Adam bomb. And the fallout of that original sin is felt in every human heart. Every one of us is born with a sin nature. When people tell you that all people are good, all mankind is just good and noble, that's ridiculous. That's not the Bible. And they haven't lived with any toddlers either. That's silliness. We're born with a sin nature. This is what Paul calls the old man. It's the rebel you. It's the before Christ version of you. It's you governed by selfishness and pride. The you that ran from God. But when you come to Jesus, this natural inclination that you have to reject God and pursue sin gets crucified. This will help. In the book of Romans, Paul sees human beings as divided into two partitions. Each of us is made up of the inner man and the outer man. See, the real you is the inner you. It's the spiritual part of you. It's the part of you that when you leave this body, you know, when you die, it's the part of you that will continue to live for all eternity. Whereas the outer man is the flesh. It's the part of you that returns to dust. When I die, some pastor's going to look down on my corpse, and he's going to say, this isn't the real Sandy Adams. This is just the body. The body is just the shell. The nut has gone. Probably what they'll say. In a sense, the day after you gave your life to Jesus, you looked about the same on the outside as you did the day before. Maybe there was a smile on your face. 
after knowing that your sins have been forgiven. Maybe there's a bounce in your step knowing that the joy of the Lord is in your heart. But your stature, your accent, your smell, your physical features appear all about the same. That's outwardly. But did you know that inwardly, in your spirit, you became a new creation? A radical change took place in the depths of your being. For in Christ, you died to sin. In the inner person, the old man was crucified. Your sin nature was replaced with a new nature. The inborn tendency to sin was replaced with a love for God and a love for others. And notice the past tense. Our old man was crucified with him. You know, for years I heard Bible teachers tell me I needed to crucify the old man. So I tried to say no to sin, discipline my body, master my passions. But nothing I could do physically was able to change what I was on the inside spiritually. See, nobody crucifies themselves. You can't say you need to crucify yourself. Nobody crucifies themselves. Crucified is never a suicide. Someone else drives in the nails. See, dying to sin isn't my work. It occurs in Christ. Take a pig off the farm, a little pig. Clean him up. Dress him in some pants and a shirt, little boy's shoes, a little bitty hat. Take him home and treat him like a child. But you're going to find out very soon that a pig is still a pig. You can't alter by changing him outwardly what he is inwardly. You have to change his nature. And this is mankind's problem. We can't change what we are. We're sinners at heart. We can dress ourselves up in religious garb. And we can speak in religious phrases. And we can develop all kinds of religious habits. We can clean ourselves up on the outside. But deep inside, we are sinners waiting on an opportunity to act sinfully. Only God can truly change us. And His solution is the cross. God's answer to our sin isn't us turning over a new leaf or getting into some kind of behavior modification or hypnosis or psychiatry or reality therapy, etc., etc. The only way for us to get victory over the old man is to crucify him. It's not a 12-step approach we need. It's a one-step approach. You need to fully believe That your old man died with God's only son. The power is in the cross. Understand, when you come to Jesus, he doesn't just add to your life. He does, but he doesn't just add. He adds his nature. He adds his spirit. But he doesn't just add. For the sin nature you were born with also gets subtracted from your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 tells us, old things have passed away. I used to think the old nature was left to sort of slug it out with the new nature. I was taught by well-meaning but mistaken teachers that nothing died at my salvation. That my sin nature continued side by side with God's new nature. The net result was a split personality. Two natures competing for obedience. And it was up to me to deny the old and to submit to the new. Here's the illustration that confused me. You've probably heard this. Two dogs live in my heart. A good dog and a bad dog. And the dog I feed the most is the dog that grows the strongest and takes control. On occasion, the good dog would win. But most of the time, the bad dog ruled the yard of my life. But that's not biblical. For you are not a doghouse with two dogs. Your old dog, if you want to put it that way, is dead. That old sin nature has been crucified and buried. You need to know, you need to truly believe that a new dog, a top dog, has taken over. Reminds me of the two old country boys. They were playing with a turtle that was crossing the road. One fellow pulled out a pocket knife and he chopped off the turtle's head. Yet its body kept walking across the blacktop. It caused an argument. Elmer said, that turtle is dead. It doesn't have a head. Otis replied, no way. How can a turtle be dead when it's still walking? Just then up walks Bubba. They asked Bubba to settle the issue. Is that turtle dead or not? 
Bubba's reply was classic. He said, well, boys, it seems to me that that there turtle is dead. He just don't know it yet. And if you're still struggling with sin in your life, this is the problem. This is why Paul begins in verse 6. Knowing this, the key is to know that you know that in Christ you are not the same person that you've been made brand new. Do you believe that? There's a cartoon. It's a home Bible study. The topic is Romans chapter 6. The lady is trying to be really honest with her friends in the group. She confesses, well, I haven't actually died to sin, but I did feel kind of faint once. And you may be thinking something similar. You know, I've run from sin. I've wrestled with sin. I've struggled with sin, but I've died to sin? That seems a stretch. Even now, you feel very alive to tempting desires and to sinful thoughts. And so here's the million-dollar question. If I died to sin when I came to know Jesus, then why do I still sin now? And why do I continue to feel the pull of sin? Well, look closely at verses 6 and 7. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. And when you look at these verses, you're going to notice that there are two, Paul mentions two pockets, or two strongholds of sin in a person's life. There was our old man. That was who we are before we came to Christ. That was the old sin nature that we were born with. And there is also the body of sin. Now remember, I'm two parts. I'm an inner person and an outer person. Inwardly, in my spirit, I'm a new creation. But in this body that I still possess, in my flesh, as the Bible calls it, I'm the same guy that I've always been. And I still have some of those same sinful habits. That means that the body still knows how to sin. That's why Paul calls it the body of sin. See, before I came to Jesus, I spent 20 years programming my mind and my hands and my tongue and my feet and my emotions to do sinful, selfish stuff. Some of you programmed your flesh to do sinful stuff for a lot longer than 20 years. To make matters worse, I still live in a world that eggs on the body of sin. The language and the desires and the images that I'm surrounded with 24-7 all point me to sin. The world reminds me of who I am apart from Christ. And even though I know I'm a new creature in Christ, old habits die hard. Would you agree? Old habits die hard. Have you ever crawled out of bed at 6 a.m. on a Saturday morning thinking it's Friday and start to get ready to go to work? That's a horrible realization when it finally hits you. What am I doing? But our autopilot sometimes betrays us, doesn't it? I used to drive a car with a stick shift. Kathy drove an automatic. And whenever I got into my wife's car, I would reach for the phantom stick shift. It was just a habit. Some actions take time to stop even when the reason for them no longer exists. And this is what happens to a Christian. Deep inside, I'm a new person. But my feelings and my thoughts and my emotions have yet to be commissioned, conditioned to act and react in godly ways. All I know how to do is act out those sinful patterns that I've programmed for all of those years. And where it happens most is under pressure. Under pressure, it's easier for me to revert back to an old habit, just sort of fall into the rut, than it is to cultivate new habits and new patterns. Everybody get, get where I'm coming from? The key is to know that I know that I know. As Paul says in verse 6, knowing this, that the old man has been crucified with him. It's when I really get my mind around the truth of who I am in Christ 
then the body of sin is done away with or its effect gets negated. When I know who I am spiritually in Christ, that truth allows me to turn a deaf ear to my fleshly desires. I see myself in Christ. I lean on the resources that He makes available to me. But if that's not my identity, if I see myself as the same person that I've always been, then I'll listen to the lies of the world and I'll lean on the lust that I've learned to use to cope. Real faith builds a new identity based on the cross and on what God says I am from His Word. Paul continues in verse 8. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with Him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. In the old Wild West days, the bad guys were wanted dead or alive. Dead or alive. Whereas Christians are made dead and alive. We're dead to sin and we're alive to God. We're dead and alive. We don't just share in the crucifixion of Jesus, but we also share in His resurrection power and in His new life. Verse 11, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Since we're dead and alive, well now let's act like it. Let's reckon ourselves so. Now, here's proof that Paul came from the deep south. He uses a good old down-home word, reckon. Let's reckon. But he doesn't use it in southern style. If you ask me, is it going to rain tomorrow? And if I were to reply, I reckon so, you know what I'm actually saying. I'm saying, well, it probably will, or it might, or I hope it will. But if I just say, well, I reckon it'll rain, I doubt very seriously if I'm going to take an umbrella with me tomorrow. That's not what Paul means when he uses this word. The Greek word translated reckon means to consider it so. To treat it as if it's really true. When Paul tells us to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God, he's saying we should consider it a done deal. We need to learn to see ourselves in light of this truth. See, all this can be true of you, but if you don't consider it so, you won't live it out in your life. God's goal is to get us to change the way we view ourselves. He wants us to alter our identity. Rather than see yourself as a struggling sinner, you need to learn to see yourself as a victorious saint. Don't just know the truth. Take a step further and let the truth that's in Christ shape in you a new frame of mind. And understand, this isn't just mental gymnastics or the power of positive thinking. Considering it so doesn't make it so. We consider it so because it is so. Once a sports writer, he asked baseball's greatest shortstop, Hannes Wagner, if baseball was a tough job. Hannes's reply was classic. He said, ain't much to being a ball player if you are a ball player. I like that. And the same is true with being a Christian. The real you died to sin and lives to God. Now it's time for you to live out what you are. If you are a ball player, you'll be a ball player. If you are a Christian, you'll live as a Christian. I love what John Wayne used to say. He said, when I take a role, I play John Wayne regardless of the character I happen to be portraying. That makes things real easy. Dress him up as a cowboy or a soldier or a firefighter or a detective, and John Wayne always played John Wayne. He knew who he was, and he refused to be anyone else. And this is how you live the Christian life. You know the truth. I've died to sin. I'm alive to God. Then you develop an identity around those truths. Verse 12. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments or tools of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. 
For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Three words sort of outline Romans chapter 6. You want to write these down. Know, then reckon, then present. Know that you're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Then reckon it so. Form a new identity shaped around those truths. And then lastly, present your members as instruments of righteousness. In short, now get behind your new identity with your mind and your words and your memory and your eyes and your hands and your feet and your mind, your members. And use those members as tools to bolster this new identity. Use them as tools to promote this new life in Christ. Start speaking and doing and going in ways that fortify your faith. Understand how this works. Identity determines behavior. Think about that. You know that's true. How you see yourself determines how you live your life. But then subsequent actions reinforce our identity. If I see myself as a speed skater, but if I never get out on the ice, I won't be a very good speed skater, will I? If I see myself as a speed skater, then I'll get out there and I'll practice and I'll work at it and I'll get better at it. And you see, you can see yourself as a Christian, but if you never support that identity, if you never read your Bible or fellowship or worship or witness or do those things that bolster your faith, it'll be hard for you to hang on to that identity when the pressures get applied. See, the idea is to get into a new groove. Off with the old and on with the new. Paul writes, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. And here he addresses another false assumption. A skeptic might say that God has freed you from the law to live lawlessly. But just the opposite is true. Under the law, it was up to us to obey. But under grace, God does the work in us. Thus, God ended our obligation to the law, not because it's okay for us to break the law, but through grace, we can now obey it. We're more successful at obeying the law under grace than we were under the law itself. Verse 16, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death, or of obedience leading to righteousness. This is so important. Everybody serves somebody. You are a slave tonight to somebody. And you choose. Think evil. Chase after evil. Live for the evil. Let your members, your hands and mind and feet pursue evil. And you'll become a slave to evil and the devil. And once you're his, he'll chew you up and he'll spit you out. Whereas if you direct your members Godward, if you read godly and watch godly and do godly and think godly, you'll become the happy servant of a generous and gracious king. Verse 17, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, You became slaves of righteousness. Again, we're all slaves. You're either a slave to God in purity or you're a slave to the devil and evil. He says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, to the degree that you pursued sin in the past, now pursue God. And and who but Paul would know or be able to use himself as an example? You know, before he was saved, Paul murdered the church. He tried to stamp out the gospel. After he was saved, he was just as zealous, but now he was zealous for Jesus. He was now as zealous for Jesus as he had been against him. And this is what he's saying here. 
you know, you would live in victory if you took the energy, if you took the effort that you used to invest towards sin and now used it to build up your identity in Christ. Some of us should take the energy that we spent raising hell and use it to populate heaven. If you partied hardy then, I hope you worship hardy now. Verse 21, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Looking back, isn't it sad? We put so much energy into a lifestyle that brought only shame and hurt. We were driving fast down a dead-end street. But now that our car's turned around, Paul says, and we're headed in the right direction, don't brake, don't slow down now. Keep the pedal to the metal. Just keep living your life all out. Just make sure you're going all out in the right direction. He says, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness in the end, everlasting life. Here's a life worth living, friends. Holiness now and everlasting life in the end. And then verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now let me admit the obvious. Is sin pleasurable? Of course it is. If sin wasn't pleasurable, it wouldn't be a temptation. But understand, there is a price to be paid if you choose to sin. The cost of sin is steep. Its wages are death. And what is death? but separation from God. Sin cuts you off from God in both this life and in the next. Sin extracts a heavy price. But God's grace provides heavy benefits, life both in this world and in the next. Well, Romans chapter 6 teaches us that we're free from sin. Now in Romans chapter 7, we learn that we're also free from the law. When you come to Jesus, you die to sin, but you also die to the law, and both realizations are vital for our victory. Jewish children were reared on the law of Moses. They read it, they studied it, they memorized it. And when a boy turned 12, he was bar mitzvahed. In other words, he became a son of the law. He was no longer accountable to his earthly father. Now he was accountable to God's law as all Jews were. Of course, the law didn't just consist of the two tablets or the Ten Commandments. It was made up of 613 commandments. And the Jews measured their status before God by how they stacked up to all those rules. A legend has it, when God gave the law of Moses, or when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, he sounded like a doctor. He said, take these two tablets and call me in a few days to tell me if you're any better. It's a joke. But Paul's conclusion after 1,500 years is that they were no better under the law. They were actually worse off. Rather than righteous, all the law of Moses did was to make the Jews self-righteous. Why? Legalism is a roller coaster. Up one minute, down the next. It's inflate, deflate, inflate, deflate. Legalism is worse than beach toys, let me tell you. One minute you're doing good. You're loud and proud. Look at me. Look how righteous I am. Then suddenly you blow it and the air goes out. See, the law created a vicious cycle. Puffed up, shot down. Puffed up, shot down. The Old Testament law produced a chronic syndrome. It was a real syndrome. And Paul writes to the Romans living under the law. He wants them to get off of this roller coaster. Moses laid down the law in a way that binds us to it. But in Christ, we can lay down the law in a way that frees us from it. The two tablets that God gave to Moses didn't make his people any better. So Paul went back to the doctor. And he asked the great physician to prescribe us a dose of grace. And he did. And in chapter 7, verse 1, we read, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, 
that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. Now, Paul compares our relationship to the law with a marriage. You'd think that since the law didn't make a man right with God, he could just walk away from it. But it's not that easy. It's like a marriage. You can't just bail out on it. Mankind is bound to the law until death does us part. He says, but if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Again, this is marriage 101. But Paul applies these protocols to our relationship with the law. You see, before we come to Jesus, we're married to Mr. Law. The perfect mate, by the way. Mr. Law, he's something else. The law was perfect. Ladies, imagine being married to the perfect husband. He wakes up in the morning, not a hair out of place. He smiles, he prays before he drops to the floor and does 100 push-ups and 200 set-ups. And that's before he goes into the kitchen and brings back a hot, delicious breakfast just for you. Now, granted, it might be nice living with Mr. Mr. Perfect until Mr. Perfect starts pointing out ways that you're not. You know, you could lose a few pounds. Why, why is he running his white glove over the top of the refrigerator and, and all of that kind of Wait a minute. Mr. Perfect is now a pest. In fact, life with Mr. Perfect would get so bad for you ladies that you'd want to take him and file for divorce. But the judge would ask, on what grounds? Forget it, your husband's perfect. So, you'd try to kill him. You'd spike his juice with a few spoonfuls of arsenic. But Mr. Perfect is so healthy that all he gets is a stomachache. Finally, you conclude the only way to really get free from Mr. Perfect is to kill yourself. And living under the roof with legalism is the same as being married to Mr. Perfect. It's frustrating and it's condemning and there's no way out. The law is perfect. It stands forever. How can you shed the law? The only way is for you to die. And God took care of that. For we died with Christ. Verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Notice we're not only dead to sin, but we're dead to the law. And remember, the law has no jurisdiction over a dead man. You know, what if I was robbing a bank and had a heart attack? I died. Would the cops cuff me and take me off and book me? No way. I'm dead. The law doesn't care about a corpse. I'm free from the law, and so are you if you've died with Christ. And when you die to the law, you can marry another, Paul says. Who is that? That's Jesus. Notice this. We go from perfect Mr. Law to gracious Mr. Love. And what a difference that makes. He's so much easier to live with than Mr. Perfect. Mr. Love doesn't always expect perfection like the law does. First John tells us love covers a multitude of sins. Love doesn't check the house with a white glove. He helps you clean the house. He's even patient with you when you put on a few pounds. There's no pressure to perform with Mr. Love like there was with Mr. Law. And with law, you obey because you've got to, whereas with love, you obey because you get to. That's what Paul's telling us. We need to walk in love. And then verse 5, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Married to Mr. Love bears fruit, but married to law yields frustration. Law tells us what to do, but it doesn't give us the power to do it. That's what makes the law so frustrating. Notice in verse 5, Paul uses the word flesh. And let me define this word. It's an important word. It'll, it'll come up later in this chapter. 
The flesh is me apart from Christ. It's me and my efforts. You see, the law causes me to trust in the flesh, which inevitably fails. In fact, rather than provide us the power to overcome, the law creates the propensity to succumb to my sins. Paul says, sinful passions are aroused by the law. Wait a minute, how can this be? Well, you know, there's an old saying, there are two ways to get something done. Do it yourself or tell your kids to do it, not to do it, I'm sorry. Two ways to get something done, do it yourself or tell your kids not to do it. If we posted a sign out here on the church yard that read, do not throw beer cans on the church lawn, what do you think our lawn would look like the next morning? We'd look like a frat house after a Georgia game. You heard it said, rules are made to be broken. All rules do is provide a sinner a target. To follow God, we need more than an outward standard. We need the inward Holy Spirit, which leads us to verse 6. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. The law held up God's standard, His target for righteousness. But it gave, didn't give us the ability to hit the bullseye. So what if you got a target, if you got a bad aim? Whereas God's Spirit straightens out our aim. It changes us on the inside so that we can hit the target consistently. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. There's nothing wrong with Mr. Law. He's perfect. And he's helped us in a vital way, verse 7. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. You know, before I come out to teach the Word of God on Sundays and on Wednesdays, my last bit of preparation is to look in the mirror. Now, it's not vanity on my part. I'm just on guard against a piece of food getting stuck between my teeth right before I walk out here and teach. Or, or maybe some nose hairs sticking out, you know, of the old nostrils there. Something really unsightly. And so the last thing I do is I check the mirror just to make, just to make sure it's as good as it can get. And, and part of my problem is the folks here at Calvary Chapel are so nice, they would never tell me even if they saw it. That's why I need the mirror. And you see, the law was the mirror to show us our flaws, show us our ugliness. Without seeing God's standard, Paul would have never known how far short he had fallen. Paul learned from the law but he didn't live by the law. Verse 8, But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. The commandment produced in me all manner of sinful desire. In, in other words, the law was a double-edged sword. It revealed my sin, but in doing so, it aroused my sin. Let me explain how this works. Close your eyes for just a few seconds. Everybody, everybody do it. Close your eyes. But whatever you do, don't imagine a rhinoceros in a tuxedo playing a pink guitar. Whatever you do, don't, don't imagine a rhinoceros in a tuxedo playing a pink guitar. Don't think it. No rhinos, no tuxedos, no pink guitars. Of course, you know what happened. The moment I mentioned a rhino in a tuxedo with a pink guitar, what, what image popped into your mind? That exact image. The mere suggestion of it produced the temptation. You know, if I didn't want you to imagine such a thing, I should have never brought it up. And this was the effect of the law. Its condemnation of sin became my suggestion to sin. Reminds me of a hotel in Houston, Texas. It's on the waterfront, and the hotel management have problems with people fishing off the top floors. Some of the high-rise fishermen, they, use, they don't use long enough fishing lines. So when they cast their metal lures off the balcony, the bait hits and breaks the glass windows on the first floor restaurant. The hotel hired an engineer to solve their problem. After surveying the situation, he suggested, remove your no fishing from the balcony sign. It was the 
sign, no fishing, that prompted people to want to fish. They wouldn't have thought about it otherwise if there hadn't been a sign. And as soon as they removed the signs, the fishing stopped. My point is, is often the law stirs up the very action that it's intended to suppress. Verse 9, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Paul recalls a little of his early Christian experience. When he first came to Jesus, he was alive with a new vitality and enthusiasm for God. He was reveling in God's grace. He was free from the law. He was accepted by God. He was out from under that awful pressure to always measure up. Serving God was fun again. Until the law, with all its myriad of demands, slipped back in and trapped him. You know, if you want to take the fun out of reading your Bible, make a law out of it. Adopt a rigid reading plan that you can't diverge from. It'll ruin reading the Bible. To lose the joy of giving, just make it mandatory. Want to turn coming to church into a drag? Make it an obligation rather than an opportunity. Paul says in verse 11, legalism is lethal. It's a joy killer. For fun, my kids used to take my rakes off into the woods. Nick was the leading char- led the charge. And they would go out into the woods and they would clear out all these paths and they would build all these little forts, you know. And they, they would rake leaves and let rake away pine straw from my yard way out into the woods. But ask those same kids to rake the leaves in my backyard and help me out. And it'd be like pulling teeth. Likewise, when the law demands that you serve, serving loses its joy. That's why we live under grace, not the law. Well, verse 12, therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. The law isn't the problem, understand. We're the problem. To save us, God in his wisdom developed a righteousness apart from the law. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. See, under the law, my sin is the issue in my life. The law exposes my sin. It casts a spotlight on my sin. It heightens my awareness of my sinfulness. But, but is that going to get me anywhere? Focus on my sin? No. Under God's grace, not my sin, but His Son, God's Son, is the issue in my life. Under grace, Jesus is what it's all about. This is why we progress as Christians, not by fighting with our sin, but by following the Son of God 